The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Excuse Good morning, everyone. Uh, we are continuing our series on the Beatitudes, which by now, if you've been attending, you know is all about blessing. Blessed is who I am, not what I have, has been the tagline for our sermon. But to get what the Beatitudes are all about, we really need to hone in a little bit on this word blessing. Because in the Bible, blessing can mean two different things that are related but that can be distinguishable. For instance, I have four small children, aged six, five, three, and one. When they're that close together, each one counts for three children, so I have the equivalent of 12 children. Now, if my parents come to my house and in and, and the middle of bedtime hell, and it is hell uh, at 6 or 7 p.m. when everyone is running around and ripping their clothes off or other people's clothes off and throwing things at one another and not eating food or eating all the food or throwing the food or whatever, and my parents take the kids and wash them and bathe them and change them and put them to bed, they have blessed me. Right? I have been blessed. That's one sort of nuance, the word blessing. But the other nuance, the word blessing, which is the one that really comes out in the Beatitudes, is the feeling that I get when the kids are all asleep by 745, however they got there, and I put my feet up, and I get my beverage of choice, and I look at my wife and say, Ah, we are blessed. Okay? Now, when I say we are blessed in that way, I'm not focusing on who has done what to me. I'm saying, this is the good life. The life with all 12 children asleep. This is what the good life is like. That's what I'm talking about. So when we get to the blessed are the in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, this is what the good life is like. Right? This is what it's all about. Right? Which is what makes the Beatitudes so weird, because he's describing stuff that on the surface of it looks like what the bad life is about. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for God's justice because they don't have it. That sounds like the bad life, right? 
And the second half of the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are those who make peace and show mercy and have pureness of heart and who suffer for doing the right thing. That sounds like a lot of work. That doesn't sound like the good life either. So the key to understanding why Jesus in the Beatitudes is saying, This is what the good life is like. This is what the happy life looks like. This is what the flourishing life is comes from just before the Beatitudes when Jesus gives us the headline and he says this, Repent, for the kingdom of God has drawn near. In other words, the reason why the good life looks like this is that God's world-turning kingdom is arriving. And because God is a God who is on the side of the down and out... Those who are suffering because of their own sin and other people's sin, those people who are mourning because of other people's sin and their own sin, they are actually living the good life because the king's kingdom is going to flip everything on its head. And those who are spending a lot of time and energy making peace and showing mercy and etc. and are exhausted and tired, they're actually living the good life because the kingdom in which mercy is done and peace is declared by the king is coming nearer. And that means that things are not always as they seem. And Jesus wants to teach us to hunger and thirst for the blessed good life that is, rather than the blessed good life that appears to be. You follow what I'm saying? Okay, so from that perspective, what does it mean this morning to hear Jesus say, Blessed are the pure in heart, For they shall see God. And the first thing I think this beatitude tells us is that the good life, the happy life, the flourishing life, the point of the whole thing is that you and I were made for a face-to-face relationship with God. Jesus is saying, whatever else you might think, the good life, the flourishing life, the happy life is the one where we have an intimate, loving, face-to-face relationship with the God who created us and the God who rules over our world. This is the story of the Bible. God creates Adam and Eve in the beginning. And where is God after he's created his people? He's in the garden with them, walking around with them. Adam and Eve are made for a face-to-face relationship with God. When sin ruptures the relationship between you and God and me and God, the psalmist sits down and he says, As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the psalmist says. For the living God, when will I be able to go and meet with God? And the psalmist is saying, we were made for a relationship with God. And when we lack it, if we know what's best for us, we long for that kind of relationship. We desire it. Like, have you ever seen, not many of us have seen that many deers, right? Okay, maybe. Uh, You know, camping's my thing, but it may not be your thing. Have you ever seen a dog panting for water? Have you ever seen an animal that's starving for food? The psalmist is saying, that's what my hunger for God is like. Because I was made for a face-to-face relationship with God. And if we zoom all the way to the end of the Bible, the hope of heaven amounts to this. They will see His face, says John. And God's name will be on their foreheads. 
face-to-face, trusting, loving, intimate relationship with God is what you were made for. It's what we've lost because of sin. And the hope of the good life is that God will give us that kind of relationship back. One of the early church theologians put it this way, Oh Lord, you have made us for yourselves. And our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in you. If we get this point, if you get this point, like God has been trying to tell me this point this week, I suspect that you, like me, will recognize that often we have lived a lie. A lie that we were actually made for something else. A lie that the good life and the flourishing life actually is consists in something else. And God might be a nice add-on, and we sure as heck would be happy to get out of hell, and we sure as heck would be happy to see our relatives one day in heaven. But at the end of the day, what's most meaningful to us, what we need most, the thing that we need like we need the next breath in our bodies is something other than a relationship with God. In fact, if I'm honest, I sometimes think a relationship with God is almost a boring thing. Thing to talk about. I don't preach all that often, but if you, you know, if you hear me preach every once in a while, you know, I get really excited about doing justice and loving mercy and accomplishing things for God. That's what the good life is, and I'd appreciate it if God would help me get there. If you were in my house, you would know that I think my relationship with my children and my kids is super, super important, and I would really like that to work out, and it would be nice if God would make them obey me so that it could work out. <laughs> But I wouldn't necessarily say that the flourishing life consists in God. We can feel like it's almost boring. And what does it even mean that life with someone we've never seen before could be the good life for us? But I want to ask you, have you ever seen the face of a child light up when you were deeply in relationship with that child and they'd been away from you? When I come from from a trip or even from a long day at the office and my three-year-old daughter Nova throws open the door and runs into the yard, there's a moment where I look into her face and I think, I could lose everything if I could have that. I would give everything for that look. Have you ever been in love? I mean, the first time, deeply in love, and you looked into the eyes of your lover and you thought, I don't have to ever do anything else again. If I could have you, if I could have this encounter, if this could be good, then everything else would be, would be secondary. Those, the Bible teaches us, and our experiences with everything else failing proves to us are glimpses, little like snippets, shadowy parables of the life that God designed for us where we look into the face of the Lord and we are like that daughter. We are like that beloved one. And we find in the face of the king nothing but joy and love and concern. That's what we were made for. That's the big deal. And let me just say this very clearly on this first point. You know, if you read our mission statement at the church, we want to get a lot of stuff done. And if you come into my house, I want to get a lot of stuff done. And we're a church that gets a lot of stuff done. And this this blessing actually talks about getting a lot of stuff done. You know I'm going to get there. But right now, I just want to make sure you get the headline for me and for the Word of God and for this church. This is the headline. God calls you into relationship with Him. And nothing else matters if you don't have that. Nothing. Nothing. 
In the same way that I cannot imagine life lived without my children. I cannot, I can imagine living on a desert island and getting by if I had my four kids and my wife. But I cannot imagine all the treasures of earth and knowing that they're out there somewhere not with me. And I'm a messed up sinner, but God has that love for you. We sing the song, He did not want heaven without you. But the truth of the gospel is, you wouldn't even want heaven without Him. If you could get out of hell, if you could spend eternity with your dead family members, if you could know that you were forgiven, but you didn't get Jesus, eternity would be hell. And if, if I don't believe that... It's only because I don't believe the gospel. It's only because I haven't listened to the word of God. It's only because I haven't followed Adriana and the worship team in singing of this exalted king who died to put us in the relationship that life is meaningless without. That's the headline. That's the beginning of the story and the end of the story. It's the only story that God created us to be in a relationship with him. We can see from this, the good life is a face-to-face relationship with God. But secondly, we can see that we, we were made for a face-to-face relationship with God, but we were also made to have pure hearts. Right? So the, the reason why people with pure hearts is, are, are living their good life, their best life now, is that people with pure hearts are living the sort of life that has a face-to-face relationship with God. Are you with me? It is the good life to have purity of heart because the pure in heart are those who live the thing they were created for, the face-to-face relationship with God. And, and, and we hear this, again, if we look at the Psalms, I think Jesus was reading the Psalms a lot all through his life, and maybe particularly when he was preaching this sermon, because we hear David saying, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who gets to go up and see God and stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So we were designed to be people of pure hearts in face-to-face relationship with God. Now, what's the connection? Well, first of all, people with pure hearts see the face of God because God Himself is pure. God Himself is holy. God Himself is perfect and above and beyond. And we cannot stand in His presence without that purity which He gives to us. But also, and don't miss this, purity of heart is what we were designed for. Because that pure, holy, good, righteous, just, merciful, immense God made us to be like mirrors who reflect that goodness, that holiness, that justice, that righteousness, that purity out into his world. So the good life belongs to the pure in heart because the pure in heart are living the life for which they were designed. What is this purity of the heart? Well, scholars tell us it includes at least two things. One is just a total fixation on God. A a heart that is undivided in its pursuit of that face-to-face relationship. That's why the, the quote from James, I think it's on the slide. James tells us, is it on there? No, it's not okay. Uh, James tells us that uh, to be pure in heart, we need to pursue... The opposite of the pure in heart is double-mindedness, says James. James sets in contrast. There it is. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the opposite of a pure heart is a double-minded heart. The opposite of a pure heart is a heart that tries to put God first and some other things slick first too. 
Okay? A pure heart is a heart that is totally fixated on God. A, a pure heart is one that knows what's best for it. A pure heart is a life that knows that God is the only person who can satisfy us. A pure heart is a heart that is fully devoted and fixed on Him. But secondly, as Jesus in His sermon will make clear and through the rest of Matthew, to have a pure heart is to have a heart that leads to total obedience inside and out in loving God and neighbor. In fact, if you want to think about this, purity of heart means totally loving God, being totally fixed on Him, and perfectly loving neighbor inside and out. So Jesus throughout Matthew is going to say, it's not just your external actions that you do that are important, it's the condition of your heart. Right? Hearts free from sin. Hearts free from adultery. Hearts free from injustice. Hearts free from greed. Hearts free from racism. Hearts free from gossip that lead to a life of perfect obedience and trust. Again, we can see this by the opposite. In Matthew 15:19, Jesus says, For out of the impure heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. Let me just pause there. That list is a comprehensive one. What Jesus is saying is, all the junk comes out of impure hearts. All of it. The racism that creates white supremacist structures of injustice. Human hearts! The longing, the perverted longing that ends in addiction to pornography. Impure hearts! The addiction to alcohol and substance abuse that leads to all sorts of other wicked behavior comes from impure hearts. And the injustice that lies behind our bigotry against the poor and the immigrant, impure hearts. Jesus is creating a laundry list of all the junk in the world and he's saying if you want to know where it comes from ultimately, it comes from hearts that are not totally fixated on love of God and love of neighbor. And if we get that, I want to ask you the exact same question I asked you a minute ago. Do you really believe that? Because I don't think that I do. I don't think that I do. On the one hand, there are a lot of sins that I don't think are all that important. That I don't think, I mean, I think I want to have a pure heart because God tells me I need it and I was made for it. I was made to be a righteous person, a holy person. I was made for a face-to-face relationship with God. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes it's not just that I really enjoy gossiping. And slandering people that I know. It's that I don't think having done so is that big of a deal. I don't think that's really getting in the way of this whole Christian thing very much. The sad truth is that sometimes Michael Rhodes drinks too much. But the sadder truth is that sometimes Michael Rhodes pretends that that's not really that big of a deal. The sad truth is sometimes Michael's anger affects his family in devastating ways. And the sadder truth is, I sometimes act like that's not as big of a deal. Because at the end of the day, drinking too much, gossiping a little bit, yelling at my kids, I mean, that's nothing compared to all the good justice work and righteousness work and mercy work that I do, right? I mean, I get to tell all you guys to be better, so in the scales it probably all comes out in the wash, right? Wrong. Every single one of you has sins that you don't think are that big of a deal. And Jesus says, I want total devotion. I want to make you like my son Jesus from head to toe. So all those little pet sins, you don't get to keep those. 
You don't get to downplay those. And you know, when you do that first sick thing that I do, you then do another sick thing that I do that I bet some of you do too. Is that if my little sins that I like aren't that big of a deal, maybe other people's sins really are. Right? So the second step is we create a laundry list of sins that matter and sins that don't. Right? So my, you know, what I'm doing down here, sometimes occasionally drinking too much, you know, whatever, 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 that goes to the bottom. But your sins, those are the big ones. Those are the sins that really get in the way of you and God. And we do this all the time. If you, like, if I, I hope that most of you don't waste your time reading blogs like I do sometimes. But if you read, like, Christian blogs and stuff, you know, we're always saying what God really cares about. God's not nearly so concerned about this. What he really cares about is that stuff we don't struggle with. Right? And, you know, like, half the room, for like, half the room, maybe, or, like, for, let's say, half of the Christian world, right, it's stuff like... What God really cares about is justice and empowerment and liberation and righteousness. So care about those things. And I mean, come on. The, like, sleeping with your whatever and like, that's kind of like, nice work if you can get it. But the real stuff is over here. And the other group does the exact opposite, right? Don't we? Don't we say, like, I, I'm a good, pure person, right? Like, I stay away from, from I, I'm above, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, what, I'm above reproach in my relationship with women. I, 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 don't, I don't even park at places where I sell alcohol so that no one can even think that ever. I'm, and, and, yeah, and, I mean, yeah, I mean, we kind of tolerate racism and injustice and oppression, but that's, the, that's like the second tier stuff. That's like when Jesus comes back stuff. He'll fix that stuff, right? God says, no, you want to know me? You want that face-to-face relationship that you were designed for? That top-to-bottom transformation. No small sins. No tolerated impurities. Transformation. God cares about all of it. And he cares about all of it, brothers and sisters. He cares about all of it because... It is the stuff that is keeping us from living the life that he designed us for. Yeah, this is another lie that I believe. I, I, it's not just that I think that some sins aren't that important. The ones I don't think are that important it's because I actually think they're good for me. Like, at the end of a long, stressful day, a little gossip is kind of good for me. It lets me blow off some steam. It lets me make, feel worse about some of you so I can feel better about me. I know, I, sh- I know it's bad for God, but it's good for me. And you can do that with sex, and you can do that with drinking too much, you can do that with injustice. It would work. It would, yeah, I, I know that it's, injustice is bad for somebody, but if I were to like, take that seriously and go do some things, it would, think about how much time it would take and money and effort and expenditure. That sin's not, that sin's good for God. That's, uh, resisting that sin's good for God, but it's not really that good for me. This sin is actually good for me. You follow me? God knows that's a lie. He knows that you were made for a face-to-face relationship with Him. And you are made for the totally transformed, sanctified, holy, pure life within which such a relationship makes sense. I learned this from my brothers and sisters in this congregation who have overcome serious addictions through recovery. See, in the world that I grew up in, we had our list of big sins and small sins. And I avoided the big sins and, and, and got to work on the small sins. Right? I made, a, I made hay while the sunshine on the small sins. Right? And then I met friends who got off crack or heroin or, or long-term alcoholic substance abuse addictions. And, and as I listened to their stories, what I realized was there was a moment where they realized this thing that I think I need to survive is killing me. It is killing me physically. It is killing me spiritually. 
I've lost my friends. I've lost my family. I've lost meaning. I've lost purpose. If I keep clinging to this sin, I will have nothing left but this, and it's worthless. And what I think this word of Jesus tells us is that every one of your sins is like that. Every time... I pretend like my sin is not that big of a deal. I am taking another hit from the crack that is killing me. And that's true whether that sin is sexual infidelity or injustice. That's true whether that sin is greed or drunkenness or oppression and ignoring the poor. Whatever the sin is, it's killing us. Now, brothers and sisters, if we don't long... For the pure hearts, because we downplay our sins, or we elevate other people's sins, or because we think our sins are secretly good for us, we are actively resisting the good life. We are actively actively resisting the happy life. Because the only happiness that we have is a life with Jesus, and becoming the sort of person who can have life with Jesus. Left to our own devices, this is so far so really terrible news. Because the truth of Scripture is that everybody falls short of that. I do, you do, we all do. And the truth of the Bible, and the truth of Jesus is this third point. That where with David, we must all say, I was born in unrighteousness and I'm I'm awash in unrighteousness and then David looks at God and says God create in me a clean heart I can't purify my heart create in me a clean heart I can't do I can't get rid of all those sins the preacher just made me feel bad God create in me a clean heart and when David prays that and when you and I pray that the good news is that God gives us pure hearts the good news of this of this this baptism that we just saw, where Addie went into the waters and she comes back out, and it's the symbolism of you're dirty and you need to be cleaned and you need to be washed. But right there before the Beatitudes, John says, I'm washing you with water. Jesus is gonna come and wash you with the fire of the Holy Spirit. Right after he gets done preaching this sermon, Jesus meets a leper. And the leper says, I can't cleanse myself, but you can cleanse me if you're willing. And Jesus says, I am willing. And cleans the leper. The good news is that Jesus is the one who gathers the people who look like they have impure hearts. The worst, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. And you see, come, come to my table. Because I've not come to call healthy, righteous people. I've come to call sinners because I'm in the giving of pure hearts business, says the Lord. Jesus is the one who sits at table and says, This cup of wine that I'm handing to you represents the blood that I will pour out for the forgiveness of your sins. The good news of the gospel is that what's inside is so impure And the God who we were made to be in relationship with has done what it takes to deal with it. And here again, I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus sees the sins you've hidden from yourself to say nothing of the ones you've hid from your friends and children and spouses and parents? The sins you've hidden from yourself, He sees those all the way down. And he is willing to rip out your heart of stone and give you a new heart of flesh. 
I want to suggest to you that here we see how deeply you and I and the world around us do not believe. Do not believe. Let me just take one example. Uh, Surely one of the most important liberating functions of modern technology and social media and whatnot is that it has created greater accountability for those who are in leadership. It is a genuine good that when people who are in leadership do stuff that is wicked, we can find out about it and address it publicly. That is a good. It is good that darkness comes to light and those in leadership be held to account. These are important things. And nothing that I'm about to say downplays that. I think, though, if you watch how we respond to the latest scandal in one of several different ways, all those different ways we respond prove we don't believe in forgiveness. Let me give you an example. Uh, maybe our guy or our woman gets accused of doing something terrible and we ignore it. We sideline it. Not on our team, not amongst our folks. Our people don't do stuff like that. Why? We don't believe in forgiveness! We don't believe. We cannot look the sin of, of, of me and my people in the face. Because to do so would make us sinners. Would make us wicked. And deep down, we don't believe there's any solution to that. Or... On the other hand, maybe we downplay it. Yeah, he or she did that, but that's not really that big of a deal. Well, then we're just putting their sin at the bottom of our list. Why are we putting their sin on the bottom of our list? Because I've got that sin too, and I don't think it can get dealt with. Are you with me? Or we do the third thing. We crucify them in public. I mean, it is not unusual to see under the Facebook post or the Twitter or whatever... Uh, this scumbag just needs to go away and die. I mean, you read stuff like that every day if you're on social media. Can I get some nods? You read stuff like every day, right? Why do we do that? Why do I feel this rage at those sinners over there? Why do I feel the need to yell about them in public? I'll tell you why. I don't know about you, but I can tell you why about me. It's because I don't want the spotlight turned away from them long enough to where it can come to me and my soul and show how I too am sick all the way down. I don't want the beating to stop for those people lest it come to me. And reveal that I, like everyone else, falls under the sentence of there is no one righteous, no, not one. This is not an excuse for the sins that are getting called out. In fact, we need the sins that are getting called out in public. We need sins of racism and sexual violence and bigotry to be called out in public. Precisely so we can look the sin in the face. But it's hopeless to do so. It's hopeless to do so unless there is a God who says, I'm going to do something about it. Unless we can't look at the heart unless we have a God who will do the heart surgery. Do you believe that God forgives all of it? Do you believe that God heals from any spiritual disease? Do you believe that God is the one who transforms no matter what? Even that sin. If I'm honest, there are sins that still keep me up at night. There are things I've said to people, ways that I've hurt those around me, that still keep me up at night. Some of them are years old. And when I think about them, I think, I am such a waste. I am nothing. I am worthless. If I'm the sort of person who would do that to the people who love me, I don't deserve to be here. There are sins 
that I struggle to believe God has promised to forgive. There are darknesses in my heart that I struggle to believe that God has promised to purify. And that is a failure on my part to believe the good news about Jesus. Which is every sin he takes. Every darkness he brings into the light. Every brokenness he heals. Every impurity he purifies. The good news is we can have the relationship with God that we were designed for. And we can live the pure life that we were created for because God will give it to us. And that and nothing else than that is the good news about Jesus. But fourth, and finally, God not only gives us pure hearts, but God calls us to pursue pure hearts. God not only gives us pure hearts, God calls us to pursue pure hearts. And here, I would like to grind an axe for a minute with you. There seems to be a message in the church right now. That because God's grace is so powerful and good and strong, that all we do is passively receive it. All we do is kind of think about it and watch Him do the work. All we do is sort of lay down and wait for Him to pick us up. God does the work, which means that we don't really have much to do. You with me? Now, I can be up here all day long... And tell you that that's unbiblical. But I thought that I'd let Peter and Paul and John and whoever wrote Hebrews tell you. So let's look at the scriptures. This is how the Hebrews says it. Hebrews calls us to strive for the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. Paul declares, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable... He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Paul says, if you want to be used, you've got to have a pure heart, so get to work. Peter puts it this way. Once you've having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you're born again. John Beloved, already we are God's children. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope purifies him or herself as Jesus Himself is pure. Did you get what the author of Hebrews and James and Peter and John all said? And Paul They all said, because God does the work, you can get to work. Because God does the work, you can get to work. This point I have entitled, God calls us to pursue pure hearts. The text actually says several times, purify your hearts. I was afraid to say that out loud because it sounds so unbiblical. Who's unbiblical, me or the Bible? I guess it's me. So the the good news of Jesus is that transformed people can get to work at the work of transformation. We don't just lay around waiting for God's grace to transform us. We get to work. The good news of the gospel is not just that God takes away the sin. It's that he purifies our heart so that we are now liberated To lead lives of purity. 
those brothers and sisters of mine who overcome those very visible addictions would not have been that testimony. If God had not by His grace empowered them to get rid of those addictions and to live lives free from devastation to sin. And that's what God's calling us to do. If we have received God's transforming power, we get to work with God's transforming power. Not least on becoming the sorts of people sold out to love of God and love of neighbor. I notice I'm getting fewer amens at this section. That's not surprising. It's written right in the text. We don't want this message. We want it either to not be so bad, or for God to do something about it that bypasses our own efforts. But He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He says, under sin, you make no progress. But I have liberated you from sin. So now you are freed. Now you are empowered. Now you are sent out to become the people that He has been graciously given to you to become. Now, I went all the way to Paul and Peter and all that because I wanted to convince you that this stuff was biblical. But the truth is, Jesus does this right in the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes set Jesus up to do this exact work in the Sermon. You see, over and over again in the Sermon, Jesus is saying, God's kingdom is drawn near. Look at your lives, folks. You're caught in cycles of sin. And he identifies some of them. And then you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, so sit around and wait for God to do something. No, he gives them something to do. To make their way through the sin. To pursue the kingdom and the righteousness and the purity that belong to God's people. Is Jesus preaching God's, is he preaching works righteousness? No! Jesus is bringing a kingdom that makes righteousness a possibility. And he's telling you to walk into it. Let me give you some examples. Over and over again, Jesus says, you guys are stuck in this violence thing. You're stuck in this violence thing. I told you not to murder, but you're raging at your brother in your heart all the time. You're, you're in, a, in a situation where you're oppressed by the Romans. And you keep trying to fight those guys. And you get stuck in a cycle of violence. He says, I, 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 you've heard, love your, your neighbor but hate your enemy. But when you hate your enemy, you get stuck in this cycle of violence. Do you want a way out? Jesus says, I'll tell you the way out. Go and be reconciled with your brother. Take the sin out of your own eye and then help your brother move towards righteousness. When you are faced with the wickedness of the world, make peace at your own expense. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you how to work your way through this violence thing. Follow me in the way of enemy love and peace in practical, tangible ways. That, brothers and sisters, is part of what the pure in heart do in search of a pure heart. And if that sounds like crazy talk, it's the crazy talk that's written on every page of the Bible. God does the work, we get to work. Think about greed. Jesus says, whatever you're doing, I know most of you are trying to serve God and money. He just says it straight up. And he says, you know what happens if you try to serve God and money? You end up hating God. God always loses when you try to worship God and money, right? You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, so go to church and pray about it. He doesn't say, sit around and wait for God to purify your heart. He says, store up treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, invest in my kingdom with your stuff... And your heart will move towards my kingdom. He's saying, what you do with your life will affect your heart. Out of the heart emerges all sorts of wickedness. But as people saved by the king, when we walk in obedience, God uses that obedience to transform our hearts. 
Uh, think about what uh, Jesus says about, um, about sexual immorality. He says, you, you, you know you're not supposed to commit adultery. And some of you are doing okay with that. But the truth is, in your heart, you're all committing adultery. Because lust is adultery. That's what Jesus says. And you're stuck in it. And, and he doesn't say, so sit around and wait for me to do something about it. What does he say? Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. Uh, you know, it was a Gandhi who said, eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. This commandment really leaves the whole world blind and handless, right? Okay, so, so there were a few people who've actually tried cutting their hands off or whatever. But most of the church has recognized what that means is take costly, dramatic action to resist sexual sin. Let me put you, this to for you, in the Michael Rhodes 2018 international version. If you are addicted to porn... Get rid of your smartphone and internet at home and Netflix if you have to. If you keep fantasizing about your coworker, leave your job if necessary. If you and someone you're thinking about marrying are struggling to be faithful in that area, figure out how to put costly restraints on your relationship that prevent it. Right? <laughs> When my, when my wife and I were dating uh, and doing an outstanding job of obeying this command, I assure you, um, the preacher just told me, the preacher just told me, he was married, he said, if, if, uh, if, if you don't want to break the actual law, uh, be home by 10 and don't drink together. <laughs> that sounded like too high of a bar sometimes. Right? I mean, we were both working, we didn't see each other very often, like 10 o'clock, no, it's like 9.58, I'm like, come on, we can keep hanging out. Right? And at that point, Jesus stands like, no, gouge out your eyes, cut off your... Do something! Resist! Right? Resist! Now, let me be very clear here. Some of you are in the battle with sin. And you're getting your rear ends handed to you. Over and over again. And I want to make it very clear. Jesus' grace and love and forgiveness is for you new every morning. Every morning. And He has given you weapons to wage this battle of accountability and, 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 and action and counseling and, and the care of the body and sharing with... There's all sorts of tools and some of you are using all of them and you're still getting your rear end handed to you. And I want you to know that I'm basically not talking to you right now. Because you are doing the work of the Lord and what He has begun in your life, He has promised to make good on. He will bring it to completion. If you are fighting the good fight, you have the peace and grace and mercy of Jesus on your life. The people that I'm talking to are those of us who aren't getting out of bed in the morning. I'm talking about those of us who are just ignoring the fight. It's like there's this war going down the street. Some of us are trying to roll over. It's like this battle for our lives. Some of us are just watching another episode of Netflix. And to those of us, Jesus is saying, like, hey, did you not get the pure in heart will see God? Did you not get that this sin is killing you and that I've offered you release from it? What are you doing? What are you doing? It's like if I was like, it's like watching television and, and eating ding-dongs while my house burnt down around me. That's what some of us are like. In a relationship with sin. And I'm talking about me. I'm like that some days with some sense. And, and, and the fact that the good life belongs to the pure in heart for they shall see God. Means not just that we're completely forgiven. But that we've been called to pursue the purity of life and godliness. In relationship to every area of brokenness in our life. And to do that because God has given us the victory. 
Brothers and sisters, if we are not doing that, if we never get out of the bed in the morning to go to fight with that sin, the sin that you like, the sin that I like, we are in that moment losing out on the good life that God is offering us. And we may be indicating that that good life does not belong to us at all. After all, Jesus says in this sermon, the tree will be known by its fruit. So where in our lives are we staying in bed instead of saying, I've been given the gift of God's work in my life. Now I'm going to get to work with him and becoming the person that he wants me to be. This is all bad news, top to bottom. Unless... It is a message that Jesus did not just say with his words, but lived with his life. Who is the one who has been totally fixed on God? Who has always served the Father? Who has set his face towards even, tragic, humiliating, torturous death in obedience to God? Only Jesus. Who is it who has been through everything, every temptation that we have been through and yet has never sinned? It is only Jesus. Who is it who has loved even his worst enemies? In fact, left the glories of heaven to die for them. It is no one but Jesus. We see the good life in the face of God, in the person of Jesus, who has lived it out every step of his life so that he could make that life available to you, so that he could give his life to you and for you, so that he could give his purity and righteousness and justice and holiness to you when it did not belong to you. Our King is the one who is God among us. And who has been the pure in heart for us. And he is inviting us into a life that is better than we cannot imagine. That is built on the promises of his own body and blood. Living and dying for us. So as I close and as some of our leaders come to the front to be available for prayer. I just want to challenge you this morning. If you are here in this room. And you are not living the good life because you do not know the one who makes it available. If you know for sure that you've never said, I'm going to follow King Jesus, I'm going to walk with him wherever he goes, what he says, I'm going to do it, where he points, that's where I'm going. If you've never made that kind of decision, there's no way we can explain everything that's involved with that in a sermon, but there are people here to talk with you and to pray with you and I want to declare to you you cannot find life you have not found life you will not find life until you meet this one who is what you were designed for and who can make you a person capable of living with him the way that you are designed for come, come and if you are like me If you know that king and you've been set on the path and you know that you're hiding those hidden sins in your heart, you know that you're not getting out of bed in the morning, you know that there are other things that you care more about than that face-to-face relationship with God. Come. One of the ways that we receive the transformation that Jesus offers is through prayer with his people. Come. Come for any reason at all, but whatever you do, don't leave without asking the Lord to begin to give you what you were made for. A life with Him 
that is transformed by Him so that you can be the person He meant you to be and do what He calls you to do beginning today and extending forever and ever and ever. Amen. Jesus, we... Well, I am convicted. Deeply convicted. My goal getting out of bed in the morning is too often not that relationship with you. And I ignore the stuff in my life that gets in the way of my relationship with you and with others. Would you transform us by your power, Jesus? Would you bring those who are hurting and broken like me this morning? Would you bring them to you? Would you draw us deeper into your life, Lord? Would you grow in us that righteousness and justice and mercy and peacemaking and purity that we need? Would you be true to your promise today, Jesus, that you who have begun a good work in us would see it to the finish, would bring it to completion? God, transformed life is what we long for. Transformed living is what our world is dying for. Would you do it among us? Would you do it in us? Would you do it through us? And would you continue doing it here among us this morning? We ask all these things in your name. Amen.